This week on Hang With Champions, we'll hang with one of the Summer Olympics' ultimate legends from an Olympian is a teen at the age of 17 to the oldest American female swimmer to win a medal at 41. And with 12 Olympic medals, she's tied as the most decorated U.S. female Olympian in history. The five-time Olympian and four-time Olympic champion and U.S. Olympic Committee Hall of Fame inductee, Dara Torres, joins us. So come on, hang with us on Hang With Champions. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Hang With Champions. I'm Patrick Keenis, and a special guest today, one of the all-time Olympic legends, Darren Torres, will join us momentarily. A reminder, you can now find Hang With Champions in the podcast version all over the podcast platforms. Apple Podcasts on Google, iHeart, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, and soon on Pandora. You can find us online as well at Hang With Champs on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook, Hanging With Champions. So without any further ado, let's welcome in one of the most recognizable faces in Olympic history. I can say that with experience from 2016 in Rio. It is my good friend, Dara Torres. Hi, Dara. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you? I'm good. It's my pleasure. Always nice to chat with you. And and I say, you know, open up by saying that you are one of the more recognizable faces. And I know I've told you this story once or twice, but for those who haven't heard it, so you and I were broadcast partners with Westwood One in 2016 in Rio, uh, my first Olympic Games as a broadcaster. So what I remember most about walking into the Aquatic Center on the first day for the afternoon session was walking through the media entrance, we're wearing our lanyards with our press credentials, and as a first-timer, no-name walking in, one of the Brazilian volunteers working the gate I mean, examine my credential like uh, I didn't belong. Let me in. You came in right behind me. Instead of examining your lanyard and your credential, he gazed up, and he might have been 16 or 17 years old, looked up at this towering goddess at six feet tall, and again, a Brazilian native said, you're Dara Torres. (laughs) And instead of checking out your credential and walking in, he waved all his friends over and they started posing for pictures with you. That's my first kind of uh, recollection of my time with you. Let's see. My first recollection was <laughs> um, doing the radio with you and you having your foot up on the desk the whole, I don't know how your leg didn't cramp, but the whole entire time you broadcast with your foot up on the table. So it's pretty funny. So I'm glad you were wearing pants. Was I wearing shoes though? Because that's one of my wearing, trademarks. Oh, I don't no, wear you shoes. Take your shoes off. And I'm like, God, I hope his socks don't smell. I, I remember that too. Oh my gosh. You know, so so we had had a couple of conversations in the weeks leading up to Rio, but I had never come across you before. So as you were getting ready to go down to Rio, uh, working for Westwood One, what what thoughts did you have about? the work process and working with somebody who you didn't know because you had worked the Olympic Games in the past. Well, we, we talked on the phone, if you remember, sort of briefly, but just you wanted to have a phone call to get to know each other and just pick each other's brains. And when I was talking to him, I'm like, oh my God, this guy knows more about swimming and I've been in the sport for 35 years. I'm like, he is going to be so prepared. I need to start doing my homework. And so um, that was my, my first phone call uh, impression with you. But You know, um, I'm not really good at calling races, as you know, um, as we were doing that. I really, really love to do interviews and and interact with the athletes. And so calling races for me has never been my thing. Um, I was definitely nervous doing it. Um, As you remember, probably very distinctly that I wasn't good at pronouncing names. Um, I think a couple (laughs) F-bombs came out. I think God, it wasn't during 
the live broadcast, um, but they, I, I definitely made, probably, I was probably the person who was most on the reel of bloopers for Westwood One. So, um, you know, but it was really a blast working with you. And of course you get, you get front row seats to watch swimming and, um, you know, it, it was just a fantastic experience in that regard. A little different not being uh, the athlete and sort of the one watching, but it, it's hard. It's not easy uh, calling the races. Like I said, you were so prepared. You had just notebooks after notebooks and everything highlighted and color coordinated. I'm coming in with like one big thing and plopping on the ground trying to find all my stuff. And, um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's not easy doing broadcasts like that. And it really does take a lot of work and you really have to know your stuff probably from four from the last Olympics up to the, those Olympics. You have to know four years worth of, of swimming. So it was quite an experience. Yeah, well, the preparation was really out of a fear of failure since that was literally my first kind of national stage on the biggest sports stage ever. But what, what the fans out there listening don't realize is you, you have such a, a huge personality and you're such an enormous figure, not only in swimming, but in the Olympic movement overall, that what I love most of all was basically – watching you operate in the mixed zone when athletes would come by after the after their races and they may have another race that night they may have another race you know over the next few days and how you operated in the in studio portion of the broadcast as well because you know katie ledecky and maya dorado and anthony urban and dana Vollmer and all the other swimmers who came through um you you are just so revered in the world of swimming that it wasn't only the American swimmers who made a point to stop and chat with you. It was all of the international swimmers who maybe you never competed against. They may have watched you as young kids growing up and you inspired many of them to get to the Olympics where you were five times. Well, I think also when I'm in that environment where the athletes are walking by, we're in the studio and we get to interview the athletes, that's sort of more my forte. And so I think my personality comes out. Um, I definitely, just from you and I talking, you probably can tell that I was much different on the broadcast um, and nervous and just, you know, just not myself compared to when I was in that mix zone or I was in the studio or whatever I was doing. It was just a much more of a comfort level. And I get to see my, you know, compatriots and the people who I've competed against and the people who, you know, maybe um, were younger and I was at a meet with them, but maybe they weren't swimming or, you know, so it's just kind of fun to, to meet the different swimmers in the different countries and the different levels that they're at and, and just really um, interact with them. And, and, you know, a lot of them will come up and ask me questions and, you know, I love that. I love being able somehow to give back a little bit, you know, to the sport. So there are so many different tangents and offshoots that, that I want to take this conversation on, but I guess first off, you know, how did you become so comfortable working in the media and interacting with the media when you were a swimmer? Because you really burst on the scene when you were about 12 years old, winning a, uh, a, your first national age group record. Right. And then all of a sudden, the country and the, the, the swimming family and media that, that follows them are just following your career anxious to see how great you become because I think everybody knew even at a young age that Dara Torres was something special. So how did you handle all of the notoriety in the media at such a young age? Well, I'll never forget my first real like big interview uh, was ABC Wild Water Sports and Diana Nyad was on deck and I had just won nationals the week before uh, and so I stuck around and it was in Gainesville. I stuck around and whatever, whoever got first or second in the events 
you were automatically on the national team of the US team and West Germany was there. And so we had a dual meet against West Germany. And so everyone kept saying, oh, like this 14 year old kid, she has so much talent, blah, 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 natural talent. I didn't know what that meant. So Diana Nyad's talking to me and, and talking about my race and God, you know, how'd you pull it off? I'm like, you know, I just really have a lot of natural talent. And she started laughing. I'm like, what is so funny? Like, I didn't understand like what was so funny. And so I really have come a long way from, you know, my first interview on the big international scene on, you know, ABC um, to being an adult and being interviewed there. And you, you really learn a lot. Um, you know, I think being an athlete and being interviewed so many times sort of prepares you to be able to be on camera. And I think that's why there are so many uh, athletes that will continue on either in their sports or other sports and become commentators because they're so used to being in front of the camera, so used to being asked the questions. And, you know, you learn a lot when you're around that a lot. Um, you know, as I got older, obviously, um, you know, yet you face obstacles too. Um, when I was training for 41, you know, people couldn't believe I was so old. How could she be doing that? And there's a lot of negative press, which I wasn't used to. Um, oh, she must be, you know, doing something illegal. Like how can a 41 year old mom, you know, be trying for an Olympic team and breaking records. And my thought process was, well, how can Jack Nicholas at 46 win a masters and how can Nolan Ryan at 44 pitch a no hitter? You know, why can't a 41 year old mom make the Olympic team? So I try to like, just sort of look at it differently. And every time there was something negative, I try to put a positive spin on it. And I think that just comes from doing so many interviews and being sort of in the spotlight for so long, you sort of learn how to adjust and, and deal with controversy too. And it's interesting you bring that up because there were a lot of people who thought that you have to be on something to, to yeah. be that successful and that fast after just delivering a baby about a year and a half earlier as well. But you didn't turn away from the criticism. You almost welcomed it, right? Wasn't there a, a new process of determining whether somebody was doping or not or on some type of substance? And you basically embraced it as one of the first ones saying, I'm clean, test me, I guarantee it, let's go. Well, a year after I had my daughter, I went to nationals in Indianapolis. And I think I broke like an American record and was just swimming fast. And my coach, Michael Loberg, came up to me and he said, hey, you know, Dara, a lot of people are talking about you. I'm like, oh, that's great. He's like, no, no, it's not good. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, there's like whispers going on. And I'm like, Michael, don't tell me these negative things because I don't want to hear it. Well, I don't know, a few weeks later, we went out to Colorado Springs for a training camp. And uh, we asked to meet with the head of USADA, who is Travis Tigert. And he's the one who brought down Lance Armstrong. And he's still the head of USADA, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. And so we had a meeting with him and I said, look, you know, a lot of people are talking about me. I'm 39, 40 years old now, and I want to show people I'm doing this right. So is there any way that we could do some special testing that I could prove I'm doing it the right way? And he's like, well, you know, let me think about this and, you know, just keep up with what you're doing and keep doing the random tests and, you know, I'll try to come up with something. Well, um, about six months later, they came up with a program where they took the top two athletes of each sport. So for swimming, it was myself and Michael Phelps. And uh, they came up with this testing regimen where they came out to where you were um, and took 38 vials of blood within like two or three weeks wow. of, of training. And this was in January, so six months before uh, the Olympic trials. And then they got a base level for what our is in our blood and is there anything irregular and you know if it's okay let's just keep testing and see if anything jumps out you know when they do the random test and so you know it was pretty cool that he did that program but it never really got publicized a lot and so people really didn't know 
that I was involved with that program. But, you know, it made me feel good that the head of USADA knew that, hey, you know, she's doing this the right way. And, you know, it's just her training and, you know, genetically, she's just blessed, I guess, to, you know, do what she's doing. So it was nice to be able to have that program, but a lot of people didn't know that we did that. And in, in a world where, when you have just phenomenal records and, and speed we've never seen before, immediately to suspicions that, well, something has to be amiss, whether it's Russian athletes or German athletes or American athletes. So why was it so important for you, especially at that age, to make sure that Dara Torres' name was always associated with doing things the right way and doing it cleanly? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. The fact that I had a daughter now who was going to be two when I went to the Olympic Games. Uh, the other sort of pressure I felt, especially at trials, was I felt like there were all these middle-aged people relying on me to do something that no one's ever done before. So maybe that would give them inspiration to do something that they put off because they thought they were too old or put off because they were a working parent and how are they going to balance it? And so I felt a lot of pressure at Olympic trials and I felt like, you know, I needed to be able, I didn't have to prove it myself because I knew, you know, I knew what I was doing and I knew I was doing everything right. And I'm just always my whole life been a, a big advocate of clean sport. But, um, but I felt like I had these people relying on me. I didn't want anyone to think that I wasn't doing this the right way and not be an inspiration to someone who was looking up to me to do something that they put off that they thought they couldn't do and decided to try to do. So then on the flip side, because you have been clean your entire career and all the world records and the 12 medals and the four Olympic championships and the list goes on, you and a number of other, especially American swimmers who have set records by the book, done it cleanly their entire careers, is that why there's such an uprising now against athletes who are either suspected or have been proven to have cheated the system, whether it's Sun Yang in China or some Russian athletes or a governing body that helps, that helps perpetuate the cheating in certain countries around the world? I think what it is is that USADA and WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, have done such a great job of laying it out there and saying, look, this is what the situation is. These are the, the drugs or prescriptions or whatever or over-the-counter stuff that you can take. These are the ones you can't. If you're taking supplements, you take at your own risk. There are some companies that put stuff in there that don't necessarily put it on the label. Um, there are some things that are in there that aren't supposed to be in there. There's so many things. So you guys have to take at your own risk. So why athletes continue to blame it on supplements when it's very clear from USADA and WADA of what you can and can't take, I do not understand that. So I think it's at a point now because they're so detailed, they have hotlines you can call, they have lists written out online, they school you. Like when you when you make the national team, you go to meetings at the training center and USADA is there talking to you. And if you have any questions, you ask them questions. So I think it's frustrating for athletes mm -hmm. when athletes do take supplements or do something and say, oh, it was cough medicine, I, sh I should have known, but I forgot or whatever. Like, it's, it's just, you shouldn't. You, you, like when I went to the Olympics in Beijing, there they had all this like fresh milk and the meat and everything. And the first thing I did actually was ask my coaches, I said, you know, 
I said, I know all the athletes are taking this, but what do we know about the hormones in this stuff? Like, is it going to be? And they're like, God, that's a good question. So they went to USADA and they said, no, everything's been tested or whatever. So, you know, I was so careful and everything I put in my body and right. yeah, an athlete is a, a fine tuned machine and they should know what to put in and not to put in your body. So when athletes come up with excuses that, oh, you know, the only thing that I would say is if there was something that accidentally got tainted that all athletes are taking, then, then I understand that. But but you should know what you can and can't take. And so it becomes very frustrating for athletes when people test positive. Like, I think there should be, you know, uh, once you do it, you're done. Like, you know, that's it. So um, I guess they're just, the athletes always, who are cheating, always try to stay one step ahead. Right. You know, and I, oftentimes they do. So, yeah, so but, from an athlete's perspective, is, is there a better way to streamline the system of testing? Streamline in what way? You mean to get around it or? Not to get around it, but to make sure that everybody understands specifically what is allowed, what is not allowed, so there's no ambiguity. There, there shouldn't be because, like I said, they, they school you on everything. The minute you're on the national team, you get pamphlets, you get emails, you have to sign all these different documentations. You have to basically let them know where you are every single day so they can come test you. Like, I, I was so scared to put certain things in my body. Like, that's the way the athlete should be, is scared to death to put something in your body unless you call them and ask if it's okay or get it tested. Let's go back to your early days, even before your, your high school time. Uh, what do you remember about the first time that you jumped in the water as a competitive swimmer at the age of, I think, eight years old? Um, you know, I don't remember much. Um, I just remember feeling one with the water when I dove in the water and just feeling, feeling this, like, I don't know, just feeling of joy, like tremendous amount of joy whenever I was in the water. Like I just was in my happy place. And I, I do remember that. Um, I, I do remember my first nationals. I was 13 years old and it was in Boston at, at Cambridge at Harvard. And I remember walking in the locker rooms and looking at these girls I'm like, why is everyone shaving? Like, don't they shave in their own, you know, bathtubs? And why are they shaving their backs and their arms? Like, what is going on? Here? Like, I didn't know anything. I was so like innocent. I knew nothing. I didn't know that you're supposed to shave your whole body when you swim. Uh, I remember seeing Rowdy Gaines and Steve Lundquist and all these like, gorgeous hunks as a 13 year old you're just like drooling and whatever lane they would go in to warm up I would get in that lane and be like okay who's in this lane I'm gonna go in this lane and so that was like my first memories of swimming as this little 13 year old teenage hormonal kid following the boys around yeah was there a sport before you were eight that you were drawn to no you know my mom had there were six of us in our family yeah. and so my mom had us doing all different sports I played AYSO soccer um, when I was in uh, middle school and in high school, I played basketball and volleyball and even played a year of volleyball at University yeah. of Florida after my eligibility was done in swimming. And so um, I couldn't jump at all, but I just had long arms and long legs. So I was able to block balls, you know, when they come over the net. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've always liked all sports. Um, just water sports is sort of what I lean towards. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of influence did you have? from from your brothers and, and, and sisters. You're what, fifth out of six, right? And a majority of, of boys in the Torres family growing up? Yeah. Um, you know, it. I was very competitive and I don't even think my brothers were that competitive, but I always just wanted to beat them. Um, whether it was being the first one finished at the dinner table, 
um, knowing we were going on a trip and I'd run to the car, try to get in the front seat or not be in the middle. And it was just, everything with me was a competition. It was, it was crazy. I had no idea, you know, looking back, I, I see it, but, um, I really, really was a, a hugely yeah. competitive kid, fiercely competitive. <laughs> was, was it healthy that you were so competitive about and obsessing about everything being first or being across the line first? No, because I get in trouble. Like if I try to finish my food first, I always end up knocking over my milk or, you know, my dad slapping my hand when I did that. And, you know, even if I got to the car first, my brothers are bigger and they put me in the back. I mean, there was always, there was no real reason why I had to be competitive, but it was just, you know, people ask me, like parents, they'll come up to me and be like, well, you know, how do you get that competitiveness? You just don't, it's either in you or, or not. And, um, I guess I was fortunate enough to, in some ways, as I got older, fortunate enough to have that. And I have to tell you, it really never dies down either as you get older. So how do you quench the competition thirst, uh, nowadays? Um, I go to exercise classes and I'm always like, I do something called solid core where you're on a megaform or sort of like a Pilates machine and you have different coils and different strengths of, you know, what you put on. And I'm always, I swear to God, I scan the whole room to look and see what people have. And I think I'm doing well. And I see some guy doing a little more. I'm like, look at that. And I put more on and, you know, it's just like, it never ends. Or I'm doing a TRX class and, right. you know, someone's doing something a little more than me. I'm like, wait, you know, and I, when I think I've got to this level, someone pushes me and I have to be better than everyone mm. in the room. I have to be better than well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up your parents a little bit ago. So tell me a little bit about um, Mary Lou and, and Eddie, and the, especially in your very early formative years. Do you know how they met? Um, the, yeah, they met my, um, my dad works in Vegas, and um, he was good friends with Dean Martin. Uh, Dean used to play at his hotels, and uh, my Dean Martin's wife, Jeannie, set my mom up, because my mom was modeling, and Jeannie was a model with my dad. So that's what I met. And then when they ended up getting married and they had my brother, Rick, Dean Martin was Rick's godfather. So um, that's kind of how they met, I guess. And did I read this right? Where, so your dad was partners in buying the Aladdin Casino in Vegas and a couple of weeks, either before you were born or after you were born, uh, the Aladdin, he wasn't the owner then, but the Aladdin is where Elvis Presley got married in Vegas in the late 60s. Yes, yes. My dad, that was, I don't know what hotel number that was for my dad, but he did um, buy the Aladdin and he gave, so as you know, like nowadays, the um, performances in Vegas are very popular. It kind of had a lull for a little while and then they just kind of like the past 15 years or so, they've really been kind of cranking out some great performers and, and bands and shows and stuff. But um, back in the old days, that's what it was, is, is people played in Vegas. In Vegas. And, um, you know, my dad had this 13-year-old kid come up to him and asked if he can play at his hotel. And he had to perform for my dad, and it was Wayne Newton. And so my dad gave Wayne Newton his first start. And um, as for fast forward, I guess, a bunch of years, um, my dad and Wayne Newton bought the Aladdin together. My dad, 51%, Wayne Newton, 40 My dad always had an upper hand on everyone. So He was just as competitive as you were. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so so what, tell me about the influence that he had uh, in, your, in your life and in your early swimming career, because I know it's very emotional, but I know it's extremely close for you. Yeah, my, my dad was definitely a work dad. Um, my mom was the one who took me to most of the meets. I think my dad had been to maybe four or five of my swim meets in my, my whole career. 
Um, and he just worked to provide for the family and take care of the family. And, you know, that's sort of what his um, personality was. But, um, you know, he's definitely very competitive. Um, my mom, who's this like thin, quiet, shy kind of woman, um, is fiercely competitive too. Like you wouldn't know it. And then you all of a sudden she'll be off like playing tennis and she has to hit harder than the other person and make sure the ball's in like closer than the other person. It's just, you know, I had no idea. So I think I get it from both of them, but my mom and then eventually my stepdad, um, really were the ones who took me to the swim meets and went to the swim meets. And my dad was the one who would take swimming away if my grades weren't good. And, um, you know, so when my dad did come to a swim meet, um, he came to trials in 88 and 2000. Um, it was, it meant a lot if that he was there because he didn't like crowds. Like he just wasn't a crowds type of person. And so, um, it really meant a lot that he went to those, you know, those, um, meets, those big meets. And visiting with Dara Torres, five-time Olympian, four-time Olympic champion, four silver medals, four bronze medals as well, 12 total. It's tied with Jenny Thompson and Natalie Coughlin for the uh, most decorated U.S. Uh, female Olympian ever. So let's start to kind of dig into your Olympic career. And let's begin back when you were still a, I think, had finished your junior year of high school. And you have the 1984 Olympic Games basically in your backyard in Los Angeles. So the, the hype we already established from your championships uh, at the age group and at nationals. But now here you are, the, the wonderkind of the sport, the superstar in the making, yet you're a teenager and you're in Los Angeles. And I have to imagine you're under a lot of stress and panic of the weight of the expectations. What do you remember about the run-up? to the Olympic games after you made the team out of trials? Um, you know, well, the good thing was that they had the training camp. Well, the trials were in Indianapolis and the training camp was in LA or Mission Viejo. So I was kind of back in my, my own pool and it didn't really hit me until we actually traveled to the Olympic village, checked in and realized like how big this actually was. Um, unfortunately for me, my best event wasn't an Olympic event yet, which was uh, the 50 freestyle. And I had held the world record in that. And I think I broke it maybe at some kind of random meet in between trials and the Olympic games. And, um, and so that was kind of a bummer. So I ended up making uh, a relay. Um, and, you know, it was, like I said, it, it, it wasn't big in, in my head. I mean, it was, obviously I was extremely nervous in Olympic trials, but once you made trials, then it was, you know, back to training and all that kind of stuff. And then going into the village, checking in. And then one of the first things we did is uh, Ronald Reagan was there, President Reagan. Um, giving a speech to the U.S. Olympic team on this big sort of stand and stuff, and um, the team captain's up behind him. And when you see him talking, you're like, okay, this is kind of a big deal now, you know. And um, I, I remember going to opening ceremonies. My first and only opening ceremonies was in '84, and you know, it was it was very organized. I didn't know what it was going to be like, but it was very organized. And I remember when the U.S. team came out, we were last, and we came around and. There's like John Forsyth, who I used to love Dynasty. I'm like, oh my God, like, look at your, and there's like all these like celebrities, like in the front row at the LA Coliseum. And I was just like, wow, you know, and so my problem was that I was a 17 year old kid sort of bouncing off the walls and all of like Carl Lewis and Mary Lou Retton and all these like Patrick Ewing, these crazy athletes and almost sort of forgetting that I was there too. Like I'm an Olympian too. And so when I swam my first race, it did not go well at all in the prelims and I was fortunate enough that they gave me another chance to be able to redeem myself on the relay at night. And we ended up winning a gold medal and it was really pretty awesome because 
I had friends and my family and my dad went. And so I had people there who, you know, were really behind me and, and cheering me on. It was just wonderful to be able to do that in front of your hometown crowd. We mentioned in, in the prelims that it didn't go well. What were the ensuing several hours like in terms of, am I going to be part of the, the final relay team or am I going to be replaced by somebody else? Well, the rule was always when you went to trials and if you placed in the top four in the 100 freestyle for the 400 freestyle relay, you automatically go swim in the morning, but you automatically always swim at night. And that was the first time that they said, hmm, you know, maybe we shouldn't have Dara, you know, swim at night because she didn't go fast. She went about a second and a half slower than she went at trials. Uh, you know, we have the West Germans next to us and some of the girls from the Netherlands and, you know, we really need to you know, step it up. And so one of the, uh, my teammates who was a team captain who happened to be the girl who I took the world record from and took the national title from, uh, Jill Sterkel, she kind of took me under her wings and she was the one who was going to be put on the team. She was the one who swam in the 76 Olympic games at I think 15, um, and, uh, was on the only gold medal swim that there was for the women, the U S women's team. And so she obviously had experience and, they were going to, she also got in fifth at trial. So she would have been the next person to be on the team. And she just kind of took me under, my, under, me under her wing. And, um, you know, we watched soap operas, which I'd never watched in my life. And I became addicted <laughs> to all the ABC soap operas and all my children, General Hospital, all those. And um, we did puzzles and really just kind of kept my mind off it. And then we went to uh, our team meeting. They said I was still going to be on the, uh, on the relay. And when I went that night, it's just my whole psyche was sort of different because I wasn't thinking about it all day, you know, and I had my Walkman, my yellow Walkman, and I was listening to Michael Jackson and walking out to the pool on the pool deck with, and I shared my um, headphone jack with a girl named Carrie Steincipher, and we just kind of rocked out walking out there. I didn't really think about it and, you know, I ended up swimming really well. So I was very grateful that they gave me a chance. So your hype up music on this yellow Walkman was Michael Jackson? I mean, he was yeah, huge at the time for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was, well, Walkman and Michael Jackson, that in itself should date me pretty well. <laughs> Do you still have the Walkman? No, you know, I don't hoard things. And so when something's done, I don't even think about how it can be valuable down the road. Right. And so, yeah, I don't have any of that stuff. So, so redeem yourself, you did. You win the gold medal. You're on the podium in front of all the American screaming fans. What was that experience like for a 17-year-old kid who hadn't graduated high school yet? Well, it was pretty cool because... Um, you know, I went to a high school that had some pretty famous people there. Sally Ride was an astronaut. And mm -hmm. there were a lot of directors, producers, and agents and that had kids that went there. And it was at that time, it was an all-girls school. It's called, it was called Westlake back then. Now it's called Harvard-Westlake. And it's a pretty infamous school in, in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, so we, I get done with the medal ceremony. And that was my only race. But then they have this huge, um, for all the athletes after the Olympics were over for all the athletes that won gold medals they took you on a tour around the United States and one of the stops was in New York so they had a ticker tape parade for us in New York City so it was very overwhelming like everything that they did for I remember Levi's was a sponsor and Levi's gave you 501 jeans which is the five buttons all the buttons were in gold like solid gold <laughs> so I don't even know where those are now but um you know it was pretty crazy the 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 what happened if you won a gold medal and what yeah. was nothing I was used to. And yet you go back to Westlake and you still have your senior year. And I, and I did read where in the yearbook, is this true? Where uh, you were, you were most likely to break a Guinness world record. Did I read that right? 
Yeah, like I think it was like seventh or eighth grade. They um, <laughs> they put they we had what people were likely to do when they or they were predictions of what they would do. So this was yeah. in middle school that I was most likely to break a, a Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah. All right. So so let's move on. It's amazing, by the way. So now 1988, your mm-hmm. second Olympic Games. You're now 21. And you're in your first ever individual Olympic final in Seoul. Walk us through reaching the final and through that race. So um, I actually gotten third at uh, Olympic trials. And one of the girls on the team tested positive for something. So I got bumped up to second. And I didn't even qualify for the 50. I was really just exhausted at those Olympic Games. I had a eating disorder. And my college coach really, I think, overtrained us. Um, I was the number one. In the, in the world going into the Olympic Games with my time. And then I just, I didn't do well. And I think the eating disorder had a lot to do with it. But, um, you know, I really honestly don't remember a lot about those Olympic Games. I just remember um, going into the finals of the 100 freestyle and um, placing seventh out of eight people. And then them um, pulling me out of the relay at night mm. because I wasn't swimming fast. So this is the first time they actually did this and I was the person they did it to. Mm. Um, and so having to watch that relay swim at night without me on it. I mean, we still, I still want a medal because I was a part of the relay in the morning, but it was just hard to do. That was like the hardest thing that I think I ever did was to watch someone else swim when I should have been on that relay. Well, actually I shouldn't have been because I wasn't swimming well, but I was supposed to be on that relay. Was there any connection then between maybe the disappointment of your times, the disappointment of not being on the relay, and then basically kind of moving away from swimming for the next handful of years to try yourself uh, and, and advance your career in, in some other industries? Well, I, um, I swam one more year in college because that was my junior year in college. Mm-hmm. And then I still had some more college left because the Seoul Olympics went into college. So we couldn't, uh, we missed a semester. So I played volleyball. I graduated. I was done with swimming. I'm like, I'm done. I've been to two Olympic games. Like that's cool. You know? And I moved to New York. I was interning at, at CNN in the PR department. I was working behind the scenes at NBC sports. And, um, I also was the person with Bob Costas on the NFL show. They didn't have digital stuff then. So every time there was an NFL score, I sat right behind him. I had to stand up and go and turn the score on the board, like behind him and stuff. Oh, like the Giants just scored. There it goes from seven to four, six, you know, 13 and then to 14. And so I was like the Vanna White of uh, NBC Sports <laughs> returning um, the scores. But, you know, it was really a lot of fun because I got to learn. I knew I wanted to be in front of the camera, but I got to learn what it was like to do a show behind the scenes. And then I got the itch again and decided to try for 92. So um, that didn't last long working in New York. <laughs> I mean, does Bob Costas remember this? I'm sure he remembers oh, yeah. you, but made, did he remember you then? Yeah, he has a photographic memory and he even remembered me going to his late night show in Seoul, Korea um, and him sort of taking me through like Jeff Zucker was his producer who's now run CNN and, um, you know, I was friends with Jeff so he had invited me and and uh, yeah, he, uh, Jeff, Bob Costas doesn't forget anything like he really doesn't. It's amazing. <laughs> So, so now let's move on to 2000. You decide, I guess, what, what inspired you to get back in the pool leading up to the 2000 games? Actually, I have no idea because those seven years I was off, I really wanted nothing to do with the pool. And it was just like hmm. a conversation with some friends and the dice started rolling in my head and I kind of got into it and thought, oh, it'd be great to, uh, to try for another Olympics. No one's ever done that. 33 and going to three Olympics and skipping Olympic games in 96. So I'm going to try it. And 
you know, once something's in my head, I go for it. So that's kind of what happens. And not only did you make the team, but you won five medals there, including your first individual medal, uh, medals, the, the, what, yeah. the bronze, the 50 free, the 100 free, the 100 uh, butterflies. Well, were you, did you feel like you had even begun to peak or had you taken so much time off you weren't quite sure how much faster that Dara Torres could go? Well, I still have the mentality, like most people did, that 3-3 was really old to be in the Olympic Games. And I'll never forget my last race. My coach, Richard Quick, came up to me, and I was kind of warming down. And he said, you know what really stinks? I'm like, what? And he goes, you haven't reached your potential yet. I'm like, get out of here. I'm 33 years old. I go, you're <laughs> nuts. And I didn't know what he meant. Like, I really didn't. I was like, oh, he just wants me to keep swimming, you know. And I was like, I'm sorry, Richard, I'm done. And, and I really did not believe that sentence came out of his mouth because I just – it just didn't seem feasible. So what did he see that maybe you could not see at that stage? I don't know. I have, I have absolutely no idea. I just will never forget that he said that. And, um, you know, he was still alive when the 08 Olympics yeah. happened and, um, you know, really got to see, I think, my true potential come out. And after I did that, then I was able to sort of look back and say, okay, yeah, now I know what he, what he meant by saying that. Yeah, so let's, I guess, move on to then – uh, your, your final Olympic Games in, in, in 08 and kind of talk about the, the run-up to that, how much confidence that you had, and really what, what inspired you to get back in the pool because you had just given birth to Tessa about a year and a half prior. And one of the articles that I read indicated that you were in the weight room and you were doing some, some water exercises the same day that Tessa was born, that kind of gave you the itch to return. How accurate is that? No, I don't know. But, you know, this is stuff you see online. So I just want to go and delete some stuff. Some, some of the stuff, they say I'm from Cuba, and I'm like, I'm, you know, I've never been in Cuba in my life. I don't have any Cuban descent. But, um, so, no, Here's your chance. You can set the record straight right now, Dara. So I was trying to work out while I was pregnant, and I couldn't mm -hmm. because I kept getting sick in the gym. So sort of a light bulb went off. I'm like, oh, you know, I can go swim. I get sick in the gutter. I keep swimming. It's not a big deal. No one's going to see me throwing up. And so I started swimming again. And it was literally just for exercise. And that was it. I just, I didn't, I had no intentions of getting back and swimming again. Um, and then my coach, a week before I delivered, asked if three weeks after I delivered, I'd swim in the Masters Nationals, which where I was living, Coral Springs, was hosting it. And I'm like, yeah, right. My doctor's not going to let me do that. And he goes, well, just ask. And one thing kind of led to another. And my doctor said, okay, it, but, you know, I had to be careful. And so I went and swam and, you know, did okay. And I mean, I was breastfeeding before I went on the block. So I was nice and light in the water. And, you know, that was it. And then, but the problem is that my daughter's dad had started back swimming and he had swum a little bit in college and he was kind of getting into it. And he was asking me if I wanted to go to Masters World Championships for a couple months later uh, out in Palo Alto and we could bring you know, our daughter with us. And so at first I kind of wasn't into it. I didn't know how I was going to balance that. And, you know, I really looked to working parents out there to figure out how to like balance doing something you love doing, but also be a great parent, you know, to your kid. Yeah. And so we went out there, I trained a few days a week and went out there and I ended up qualifying for Olympic trials uh, in the 50, which I didn't mean to do, but I, I was like, okay, I'm done, you know, and then people just kept coming up to me and it's like, oh, you need to represent us middle-aged people in the Olympic games. And mm. I don't know, the peer pressure of all those master swimmers um, kind of got to me. I was like, all right, I'll do it. And that's sort of how it all happened. <laughs> and, and my gosh, did you do it? Because I watched the, the replay of the 50 free final from Beijing earlier today, as a matter of fact. Oh. And to me, it was just so, um, it, was, it was agonizing to watch because you were 
one one hundredth of a second away from winning an individual gold in the Olympics at 41, which turned out to be your last games. What do you remember about that race? And then when you hit the wall, did you think you had Stefan at that stage? Well, the night before, Michael Phelps at Swimmers Hunter Butterfly. And I was warming up just to get a warm up because I knew I had to swim at 10 in the morning the next day in the finals. And so they have these huge big screen TVs in the warm up area. And I was on the massage table kind of getting dressed. And I wanted to watch his race and then go eat and then go to bed. And <clears throat> I remember watching his race and he was, as you know, behind the whole entire, like a body length behind the whole entire time. He started to catch him a little bit at the 75 meter mark. And then he was still behind at the flags. And I'm like, oh my God, there goes like his eight gold medals that he wants. Mm -hmm. And I was watching, he came in and uh, is it Kavich? Is that, I, I don't know how to pronounce yeah. his last name, but he came in the wall and he took an extra stroke and Michael took a nice long stroke. And I was like, oh my God, he lost. And I'm like, oh my God, he won. And I could not believe it. I mean, I literally thought that he lost and won a silver medal. And then I was thinking, oh my God, that poor guy who lost by a hundred of a second, that's gotta be the worst feeling <laughs> in the world. So then fast forward the next day. And um, <clears throat> I was the first one there at 6.30 in the morning. I wanted to be the most prepared. Um, and so I got in and I swam in my lane in lane four because it's really hard, as you know, as you watch the Olympic Games and Rio, the pool's packed in warm-up. And it's really hard to get a really decent warm-up. So I'd always go in the warm-up pool because it, they have the exact same pool as the competition pool, as the warm-up pool, the exact same starting blocks, exact same pads. So it wasn't really a big thing to me, but knowing I was swimming in the finals and I was qualified first um, and people were gunning for me, um, I wanted to sort of memorize my lane and there are lots of camera cables down there and TV cameras. And so I got in and there wasn't anyone in the pool and just Bob Costas and his little stand. And that was it. Just me and Bob Costas and my coach and a janitor mopping off the, the floor, the pool deck. And I swam my little warm up, got out, took a shower, waited an hour and then came back and did my regular warm up. And I get up on those starting blocks and the gun goes off and I dive in and I'm feeling great. And you know, 50, it's like, you can't make one mistake or that's it. And I felt really good. I came into the wall and I touched the wall. And when I look at the scoreboard, I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe that I lost by a hundredth of a second. And I just, I didn't know what to do. I just remember kind of putting my head back. And, you know, the great thing about swimming is you can go underwater and you can cuss all you want and no one hears you. They just see bubbles coming up. So <laughs> I made a point to go under and I always congratulate the people who you know, did well. And, and even if they didn't do well, I try to congratulate everyone. And I just remember just cuss words flying out of me as I went underwater con to congratulate British Stefan from Germany, who beat me by a hundredth of a second and going under the other lane and congratulating 15 year old Kate Campbell, who got third. And just, I couldn't, I just couldn't fathom like how that happened, but I had a relay in 30 minutes. I had to go warm down, do the medal ceremony, go back into the ready room and march out with my relay team. So, and I was anchoring it. So watching the replay of that race whether it was later on uh, in Beijing or after does it get any easier to watch no and and my reel when I go and give speeches has that race on there and I just <laughs> I just turn around and I'm like oh and I every time I go out on a speech I'm like god I wish that ending was different you know why can't someone edit it or something so yeah. well you know thinking back on the race when you mentioned you got to the to the uh, 25 meter mark and said I can't have any mistakes do you recall, were there any minor mistakes that cost you or did Britta just swim slightly a better race? So I called my coach right after. He was at the NIH um, having blood transfusions, just very sick. And um, 
So he was in the hospital and they, I guess they showed the replay a bunch. And he said, you know, Dara, it just looked like you didn't touch the touchpad hard enough, you know? And I mean, everything else was perfect. And um, so when he said that and I got out and warmed down, got my medal, went to swim my relay, I actually, when I anchored the relay, I broke my thumb touching the wall because I touched it so hard and tore the ligament off. And when I got back to the States, I had to get surgery on it. So um, I do listen to my coaches, but I think the hardest thing for me was how to live with myself, having known that I lost my hundredth of a second. And when I took that long plane ride back from Beijing to the United States, I, you know, I thought to myself, you know what? I did everything that I possibly could. I ate the way I was supposed to eat. I listened to my coach. I was a great mom. You know, it just wasn't my day to win. And if I gave it everything I had, that's the lesson that's learned here is that you, you have to take away that if that's the best you can do, that's what the best you can do. And you have to be okay with it. And I think, isn't that, isn't that really your mantra for everybody across the world on, as far as dealing with failure and figuring out what's next for anybody of any age in any profession is that you give your best, you give yourself a chance to succeed and or win and, and, and life will, will reward you. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it wasn't my day to win the gold medal and I gave it everything I had. So I couldn't be mad about like, why could I, why should I be mad if I gave it everything I had, you know? And mm -hmm. I think I touched the touchpad hard enough. He doesn't think I did, but um, you know, it's just, it is what it is. And I did everything I can and I had to be happy with a silver medal. I mean, it was my, I mean, I broke an American record. It was, it would have been a world record and um, it was the fastest I'd ever gone. And you know, I had to be okay with it. So just a few more questions for Dara Torres. And I, and I, I don't know if you're going to answer this question the same way you just did, but looking back on your swimming career, is there anything that you feel you did not accomplish or did you accomplish everything that you really set out to uh, when you were a young kid? I accomplished everything that I possibly could accomplish. So, you know, I know that I've always sort of wanted that, not sort of, I wanted that uh, individual gold medal. Um, but you know, life has a plan and, um, you know, for me to have swum in five Olympic games in a 24 year span is something that no one's done before in a, you know, in a, um, aerobic sport. And so there are other things that I did that I need to be proud of and my age and, you know, having had a kid and, you know, there are a lot of athletes now having kids and it's just so awesome, um, that, you know, some have said that it's because that I had one and, you shouldn't like have that myth that, oh, you're a mom and you just need to go be a mom. You know, you can be a great mom and also be a great athlete. And so there are a lot of things that I've accomplished in my life that I'm proud of. And I don't feel like that gold medal eludes me. I feel like I have a lot of other accomplishments in my life. You know, a couple of decades ago when we were younger, fan mail used to be a really big thing, whether it shows up at the baseball park and ballplayers lockers or at the football stadium. And I'm sure it happened for you hundreds and maybe thousands of times. Maybe we don't get fan mail now, but do fans still connect and contact you to say thanks for the inspiration, the guidance, the positivity that you provided them in their lives? A lot of moms and grandmas do. <laughs> Not really the kids, but you know, I still actually I, I still do get fan mail. It's crazy. Um, and even when we were at the Olympic Games, it, people would send telegrams. 
to you, mm. you know, and, and they'd, they'd, you'd, they'd put them up, USA Swimming or USSC would put them up on the walls and, you know, it was pretty cool. But yeah, I, you know, I'll take flights and there's some people who know I am and some people don't know who I am. And, you know, I just kind of mind my own business and someone comes up and wants to talk, you know, to me about it. I love talking to people and I love when people come up to me and ask me questions and, or tell me their stories. And, you know, I really do get a kick out of it. And I'm, I'm honored that people still do do that. So it's kind of fun. I know you didn't keep the yellow Walkman, but did you keep some of those telegrams? Uh, yeah, I do. I was actually just going through a bunch of them the other day and I still have, you know, I kind of organized the, the office and I, and I have just containers with like oh. band stuff and Olympic memorabilia and, you know, so I, and just tons of pins and, you know, I just have a, a lot of cool stuff that eventually will go to Tesla. And were most of these telegrams just from regular Americans or swimming fans around the country or did you get some from some celebrities and other notable people? Yeah, you know, I from all different walks of life. And, um, you know, this was before there was email too, like in 88 and 84 and 88 and 92, there wasn't really email. So that's how people would communicate with you is, is you get telegrams. And they're really kind of fun. I got some some cool ones. Yeah, to say the least. So I asked the same question of Natalie Coghlan last week and Apollo Ono a couple of weeks ago. Every Every champion is driven by something. And it's generally not the same thing. But what was the, what was the fuel that made Dara Torres a champion? I think, I don't know when I was younger, I think it was just competitiveness. But as I got older, I think it was trying to do something that other people haven't done before. I think that's what, you know, whether it's the longevity in the sport or competing at an older age, you know, it was just doing things that no one's done before to be able to pave the way for other people to be able to do those things too. And does Tessa have a good grasp on exactly who her mom is and was in terms of the Olympic movement, the Olympic era, and the successes that you had? She understands the Olympics, but I don't think she knows half of the stuff that I did or what it took to be an Olympic champion and, um, you know, all the training and all the, there's so many articles. I mean, at one day when she's old enough, she can go through the stuff, but right now she's a 14 year old going into high school and um, just sort of with her friends. And, you know, I think that a lot of her friends' parents know who I am and stuff. And, um, you know, that's kind of fun. And I talk to them, but uh, no, I don't think she, I mean, obviously she knows I'm a big champion. She knows I have 12 medals. She doesn't know about my records. She doesn't know all my training and everything I did. So one day she'll learn about that stuff. And I saved everything for her. So if she wants to know it, great. If not, she can give it to her kids. <laughs> I mean, you, you had so many incredible teammates uh, and competed against just amazing swimmers around the world for, for decades. You know, whether it's, you know, Jenny Thompson, you mentioned Nancy Hogshead and Michael Phelps is on your team and Rowdy Gaines is on your team and uh, Dana Vollmer is on your team and Janet Evans. I mean, the list is endless because of the prominence of USA Swimming. What, what are some of your recollections, your fondest memories of, you know, one, two, or, or several of your teammates? You know, there was always something about one teammate that I always looked up to. There always wasn't one person who had everything. Um, everyone has different personalities. Uh, you know, obviously there's lots of stories with our training camps and going to the Olympic Village and, you know, just things that like we will always remember. But, um, you know, every athlete is unique. And, and there's, like I said, there's definitely something that I really look up to with these athletes, no matter what sport they're in, no matter if they're a gold medalist or barely made the Olympic team or just on the national level, like whatever it is, like there's, there's just some amazing athletes out there. Some who've mm -hmm. gone through some 
you know, struggles to get to where they are, you know, others, you know, have certain things that help them, but, you know, still um, make incredible achievements. And so, you know, everyone's different. So it's very hard for me to say one specific story. I mean, obviously there's lots of fun stories about uh, these Olympians that, you know, I have to keep in the vault. <laughs> of course, of course. And uh, I guess, you know, if you could close your eyes and only envision one Olympic race in which you raced from any of those five Olympic games, what race do you see? It would probably be the 50 freestyle. Uh, you know, that's probably what I thought about most because at the beginning I couldn't understand why I didn't win a gold medal. And um, it just kept going over and over and over in my head. Um, and it, it really, you know, every race, every performance, every workout shapes who you are. And so, you know, I'm able to talk to people who not everyone wins the gold, you know, and you have to sometimes settle for the silver or bronze or not medal, but you still do incredible things in your life. You don't have to go have a gold medal to do something incredible. So, um, you know, that's sort of the way I look at it. So I have to say the 50 freestyle in Beijing. All right. Well, I can't thank you enough for, for being such a great partner of mine four years ago in Rio and a great friend of mine now. And you are a power words with friends player. I think I'm, I'm uh, winning about 25% of our head to head matches. Like an 84, you know, hey. word. I'm like, Oh my gosh, he just beat me by our, <laughs> by me by a hundred points. We have been playing words with friends mostly every day since the Rio games ended in August of 2016. And I swear I'm probably winning 30% of these games. I'm not sure how, but I'm a slow improver, Dara. I'm, I promise You're, you, don't drop your guard. Oh, I'm not. I'm not for sure. You beat so, me a number of times. So, so lastly for you, Dara, what, what, what is next for you? I know you're, you've written a couple of books. You're still involved in TV. You're still involved with the United States Olympic Committee and several foundations and charities. What's, what's, ne- what's going to be enough to satiate you over the next 40 years? You know, it's been very hard with this quarantine stuff, uh, sitting around and chilling. I mean, of course I have Zoom interviews and I have other stuff, but it's not the same as being on a plane, going, giving speeches. You know, I miss that stuff. So I'm, I hope once all this kind of gets situated that I'll be able to get back into giving motivational talks, doing the charity work I do and, um, or going and doing TV work. Like that's the stuff that I really love, but it's also on the flip side, been fun being home with Tessa and not traveling as much and having more time with her. So it's kind of been like a double-edged I won't say sword, but maybe the opposite of that. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, continued success. Great health to you and Tessa. And I hope it's. I hope the world will loosen up soon enough where uh, you and I can get together before another couple of years go by. Sounds good. All Thanks, right. Patrick. Dara Torres, join us. Well, that's going to wrap it up for another episode of Hanging with Champions. You can find us really everywhere on any podcast platform: Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts iHeart, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, and soon to be available on Pandora. On social media, we're there as well. On Instagram, at Hanging with Champions. Facebook, Hanging with Champions. And Twitter, at Hang with Champs. So for Dara Torres and everyone involved here with Hang with Champions, I'm Patrick Kiedis. I appreciate you hanging with us. Until next time, thanks for listening to Hang with Champions.